I mean Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 28, and then through the end of chapter 2, which is verse 23. You guys can go ahead and turn there. Tonight we're going to look at Christian maturity. What is it? What is its foundation? And what are some things that we can be doing as we mature or if we find that we're not maturing? In the passage before us, we will see that Paul lays out that Christian maturity is extremely important. It's worth sacrificing for, as Rob laid out so well last week, and it is founded on God and His work. This, in turn, requires us to realize our identity in Him and that we forsake any other foundation that isn't of the truth. So the idea here, the thesis here, is that Christian maturity is life lived gratefully and wisely in the knowledge of God's truth and the gospel. This then allows us to be able to discern good and evil, and that by the grace of God put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, a readiness to forgive others like the Lord forgave us, and love. The mature are marked by a great deal of love. Tonight is deeply practical. It's simple even. Not easy, but it is simple. Distilled down to its most essential elements, it really is what we teach our children. And therein lies what looks to many to be a paradox. We tend to think of the gospel, not entirely wrongly, but we tend to think of the gospel merely as a means of justification, while forgetting that it is also the means for sanctification. The gospel is both the milk and the meat of our faith. And while these foundations for maturity that we're going to talk about are where we start, they are also where we finish. Or in other words, while we must grow up in our faith, we never grow out of our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So my hope for us tonight is that we would be reminded that we must know God and what he's done know whose we are, and that all of us would cling to the truth. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks that you are God, and you made us your possession, a people, a family, a glory for you. Tonight, would your word cut sharper than any two-edged sword, and would you grow us up? Would each person hearing this know you and be presented to you, mature in Christ? Amen. Amen. All right, so the goal, presented mature in Christ. If you haven't already, let's open up your Bibles and our Bible apps, since that's a thing, to Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. And speaking of Christ, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Verse 1 of chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Going back to last week, we see here that Paul has a job. and More than that, he has a burden to present everyone mature in Christ. 
As Rob touched on last week, the background as to why Paul wrote this letter is that the Colossian church was experiencing uh, some worldly influence and some false belief systems taking or gaining a hold in that body. Paul knows that anything that distorts the person and work of Jesus Christ, at minimum, distracts and stunts a believer's growth. And at its worst, prevents saving faith at all and leads to hell. It's really important. Paul is very, very serious about getting the person and work of Christ right. And that theme is in almost every single one of his epistles. As Paul is talking about maturity, he knows that maturity doesn't happen in a vacuum. And conversely, neither does immaturity. Both believe something. Both have lives that are defined by actions that are directly tied to what they believe. There's no middle ground here. There's no neutral ground. So here in chapter 2, Paul is going to lay out three foundations for Christian maturity. And they are these. Number one, the person and work of God. Number two, the identity of the believer in relation to God. And number three, the priority of believing what is true and the rejection of beliefs which are lies. If these are understood, if they're meditated on and practiced, the Christian will mature. Now I can hear some of you, because I did this, You start talking about hearing about maturity, and you start looking at parts of your life where you're like, oh, I'm really immature here. I really struggle in this way. I've spent a lot of time, you know. And the idea can creep into your mind that, well, maybe I'm not saved. Before anybody starts questioning their salvation, I want us to remember that Paul in this letter is talking to believers. So everything that he brings up, all these things to be watchful for, all these dangers, He's saying this largely to believers. Tonight, I am speaking to a group of believers. And thanks be to God that he's faithful, and it's not all up to us. He's doing a work. I'm not talking about losing your salvation tonight or questioning if you're saved. I'm talking about living in such a way that is consistent with the truth about God and about us in him. There are times when we forget. There are times when we turn away from God. There are times when we get distracted. We all know what it feels like to build on sinking sand. And we've got to stop doing that. The mature are aware that their hearts are prone to wander. And by the grace of God, they work to repent and to reorient themselves when they fall into sin. Simply put, they repent and turn to Christ. This does take time. But good fruit should, to ever greater degrees, characterize the life of the believer. Again, it's not all at once, but we and others absolutely need to see growth. And when we don't, that's an indication that we must turn to Christ and his word. Okay, so let's dig in. <clears throat> Number one, the person and work of God. The first foundation of maturity is God. 
who he is and what he has done. So look at your Bibles in Colossians, uh, verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> Speaking of those churches, people in those churches. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you see what is said there? The answer is Christ. Questions about life, existence, ethics, higher powers, culture, philosophy, you name it, whatever the true answer is, it leads back ultimately to Christ. We ought to know and believe that. And I'd encourage us to really consider our minds are used here. We need to think about this. If you look at the language there, understanding, knowledge, wisdom, the answers to our questions begin and end with God. Christ is not called the Alpha and the Omega for no purpose. He is the beginning and the end. Now look at verses 9 and 10. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus Christ is fully God. And he is the head above all rule and authority. Just real quickly, this is an aside, but when Paul starts talking about authority structures and practices in chapter 3 with husbands and wives, children, slaves, and slave masters, he's talking about those in light of this verse right here. Any authority is derived authority from the head of all authority. Chaos in the heart and in life is always the consequence when a Christian does not believe that Christ is Lord over some area of their life. If you experience disorder and chaos in your personal life, marriage, family, church, if this is a defining characteristic of how you live, then I would encourage you to really consider, do I believe that Christ has authority over this area? <clears throat> really looking forward to in a couple weeks, Kevin's going to talk about what this looks like in families, but in, in particular. But what Paul is calling believers to in marriage, family, and society is that we must recognize that Christ has all authority over everything. And if you believe that, that will change how you live. It will change your part in your marriage, it will change your parenting, it will change how you work, it changes everything. So, back to our passage. So Christ is God, he has all authority, what else? Look at verses 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, 
in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Christ is the heart changer. I want us to jump over to Ephesians 1 real quick. It's not very far away. Verses 4 through 10. I want to give some context to what I mean when I say that Christ is the heart changer. Or in other words, what did he do? In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Listen to this part. This is key. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Do you want to know some of what Christ has done? Boom. Ephesians 1. This whole chapter is such a densely rich passage, but if we focus on verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. His blood redeemed. He shed his blood on the cross for the redemption of our sins. And then, as Colossians 2.12 says, Christ was buried and raised. That's the foundation. God the Son came. He died. He was buried. He's raised. He is alive. And he, present tense, rules with all authority. That is something we can say amen to. Now let's get into 13 and 14 in Colossians chapter 2. Now Paul reiterates our death burial reality here, and I don't want to skip over it. For all of his brilliance and technicality, and when I say that I'm thinking like you know Romans, Paul every so often has a shockingly descriptive, almost emotive moment. And we see such a one in verse 14. And you, that's all of us, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. These next verses are some of the best in the Bible. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I was challenged as I was preparing for this in this part. Can you imagine the record of sins that stood against you? I don't think there's enough paper in the world for mine. But here's what it said. But God forgave all our trespasses, not some. 
Think about that record for a moment. Is it too large? Is it too shameful? Is it too heavy for Christ to bear? We can all say, thanks be to God, that the answer is no. He is able. God canceled our record of debt. That means he does not hold us now, today, and tomorrow. He does not hold us responsible to pay. Because Christ did. It's done. I love this part. God set that record aside. I'm a visual person. I imagined a mountain of my sins on paper. God set that record aside, and he did not allow it to stand between us and him. There's nothing between us and him for those who are in Christ. And instead, he poured out his wrath, his just wrath, on that cross, on the Son, instead of us who deserved it. This is a beautiful picture. And the amazing thing is, it's not a metaphor, it's not just a picture. This is history. Christ really did this, and it's true. That is the he became sin who knew no sin, God, that we love and that we follow. It's the reason we're here today. This is the God and his work that we need to constantly and continually know day by day. His person and his work are foundations for us on which Everything in our lives rests. And the more we understand this in our hearts and minds, the more our hearts and minds are changed and matured. So this leads us directly into our second foundation, number two, the Christian's identity. So in order to mature, we must also know who we are in Christ and Live in the way that he has called us to. So look at your Bibles, verses 11 13. We're going to revisit this real quick. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, some of us after reading this might be a little bit confused. We had the previous section talking about uh, God, who he is, what he's done. And on a good day, that clicks with us. We get that. Then we come to this section, and we might think, what is Paul talking about? What's with the circumcision and the circumcising without hands stuff? It it seems kind of strange. 
Maybe you might just breeze over that part. Or am I the only one who's guilty of that? This is actually really simple and instructive. It's saying a couple things there, but for tonight, this is really simple and instructive. Paul is talking about the Christian's identity. So who are you? Or, to say it more accurately, whose are you? See, as many of you know in the Old, Te- in the Old Covenant, circumcision was an external sign that you were an Israelite, one of God's chosen people. It signified that the person who was circumcised belonged to God. Paul is saying, believer, you are not your own. You are Christ's. He did a work in you, and he has set you apart. That fundamentally changes who and what you are. This is hugely important to understand and remember. Because again, the context here is maturity and what we must believe and practice in order to mature. This point, this idea pivots around verse 11. But the supporting verses in this passage is, in this passage are 2.6, 2.8, and then 2.12 through 14. So jumping to 2.6. <clears throat> this, is almost, this verse is almost a summary of the entire book. Therefore... As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Verse 6 sets up a really practical reality for us, and it's this. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, and Lord is not an accident there. That's authority language. So walk in him. True belief leads to works, to good works. Remember our study in James, faith works. Verse 6 is so good, though, in simplicity. Do you see that? Receive, walk. But there's more there. Christ is in both sides of that. He is the foundation for both. Receive Christ, then you walk in Christ. He is the defining foundational identity Paul reiterates this using different language in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and listen to this, and not according to Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive. Paul lists a few things. And he says, not and not according to Christ. We are, every believer here, is and ought to act like captives of Christ. That's identity language. And I love what Paul is doing here in this, in this passage. He's making identity observations everywhere about us. Uh, in, in, in verse 8, it's captives. In 11, circumcised, set apart. Raised, we're alive, we're, we've been raised to life in 12, we're alive in 13, and in 14, we're debt-free. We're no longer debtors. And how is all of this possible? Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, 
which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If Christ is in us, then every identity we may have submits to Christ. He has said what his people are, and they are his. We must remember this. I am not just or primarily Nick Borsick. And you can insert your name in there. I am a Christian, and my name is Nick Borsick. Christian Gerber gets it twice, which is pretty cool. We must know this. Who God says we are is foundational to how we end up living. So we've looked at what God says about himself and what he's done, and we've looked at who we are and how we're called to live. I want to look at the final foundation. So number three, believe the truth and forsake the lies. Chapter two ends with Paul stating a third foundation for Christian maturity, and it's this. In order to be mature, the Christian must believe the truth and reject the lies that are so commonly around us or that attack us. In chapter 3, Paul lays out what the consequences of false beliefs about who God is and what he's done, or who we are, and, and then he lays out the consequences of believing the truth about who God is, what he's done, and who we are, which is why he will say, set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. Paul directly connects belief to action, to how you live. If you believe a lie, then you will not mature. In order to mature, you must know the truth. And you must set your mind on the truth. We must believe the truth. He gives us a really helpful list of false beliefs or false belief systems here in chapter 2. So in verse 4, deluding plausible arguments. In verse 8, worldly philosophy. Again in verse 8, empty deceits. Verse 18, asceticism. Verse 18, the worship of angels. Verse 20, worldly regulations. Verse 22, human precepts and teachings. Verse 23, self-made religion. And then again in verse 23, he mentions asceticism and severity to the body. And that's quite the list. Do any of these look familiar to us? Have we or are we guilty of believing human teachings and worldly regulations? Maybe self-made religion. Maybe for you it's one of the others. If we are honest at all, parts of this will look all too familiar. Because we are bent towards seeking anything besides God in our flesh. Our flesh is not the full story for those who are in Christ. But this is still something that pulls us. We are bent towards building on that sinking sand. And this is something that we need to be mindful of, to be watchful for. And we must be killing this desire. Each belief in this list 
replaces the lordship of Christ with a false lord, a false belief, a false truth. Friends, you know this, but we've, we've got to be reminded, we may not replace the God of heaven and earth with anything. This is incredibly important and something that the modern church gets wrong so often. And you know what? So did the early church at times. So has every era of the church. And far from being an excuse for us, ah, everybody struggles. No, it's not like that. Far from being an excuse for us, on the contrary, this fact should make us take a closer look at ourselves, at our families, and our churches. This is a constant danger, and Paul is saying repeatedly through this passage, believe the truth and don't believe the lies of this world. Do not endeavor to, through a lie, to look for a Savior anywhere besides Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16 Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul's talking about a particular law with the Jews there. Uh, That's no law anywhere as well. There is nothing that can save us outside of Christ. No works of the law done by anyone besides Christ can do anything to take away our guilt. As the new hymn says, in Christ alone my hope is found. Do we believe that? If we do, then we believe the truth and we will forsake anything that opposes the truth and that changes how we live. Philippians 4 Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, listen, think about these things. And what you have learned and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Whatever is true, Think about these things. Practice these things. Why is this so important? Because you cannot know the capital T truth by believing a lie, and you cannot mature if you don't know the truth. And remember, Jesus has all authority, and this is what he said. And I hope this sinks in for us. If it does, it will make us watchful over ourselves, our families, and our churches. Many lies and many plausible arguments and worldly philosophies and self-made religions and human teachings have crept into the church. We don't have to look very far to see this to be true in our day and age. And this has caused the lives of many believers to be stunted, sometimes for an extended period of time. Or even more dangerous, convinced unbelievers 
that they are in Christ because they've been handed a false gospel. It is vitally important that we know the truth. We don't have time to get real deep into it, but I did want to provide an old example and some modern examples of of what this can look like. Okay, So back into Galatians 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. By works of the law, no one will be justified. The truth is that Christ is sufficient. Works of the law add nothing to what he has done on our behalf. The mature know this and live like that's true. So what about today? Um, a quick example would be the LGBTQ+, etc. cult. Uh, I do need to preface this with we need to love the people in this cult. But this worldly philosophy must be killed. It rejects at a fundamental level the authority of God over his creation and does a particularly horrific thing to those who bear his image. It is of Satan, the father of lies, and it has no place in the church. We must adhere to what God has said is true about human relationships and sexuality and not what the world says. And this is a very common one right now. Um, Let's bring one home to this body. Man-made traditions. There's a disposition that can easily appear in a wonderful body like this that grounds certain definitions of what right living is in the person's opinions and not in what God has said. This can come out in conversations about clothing, what we eat and drink, how we spend our time, what we spend our money on, the priority we put on one thing and not another, certain celebrations, and there's a host of other examples we could talk about. Within all of these, there is wisdom to be had as well. Some of this is, is, is wise to think about and question. Some of it ought to be heard. But some of these can easily become self-made religious doctrines. We must be very, very careful that if we talk about areas of life that are not precisely defined by Scripture, 
with a brother or a sister, that we do so not from a man-centered position, but from a God-centered position, and that we don't bind people where God has not. Should we share personal experience? Sure. Challenge each other in certain areas that might need work? Of course. But we have to recognize that Christ is the authority here. And we don't make ourselves the arbiters of what people should do outside of Christ. Short word for that is legalism. If we do have these conversations, going back to our definition of maturity, we have them in ways that are wise, compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, and loving. The danger Paul lays out here is not an out there danger. It is one that if we are not watchful over ourselves and our families and our churches, we can easily fall into because, again, we are bent this way. So we've looked at what maturity is, a lot of what it rests on. So where do we go from here? There's a bunch of different things we could talk about. I'm only going to talk about two. And I want us to look at these things as ways of thinking, ways, practices, that as we mature or if we find that we are not maturing, that we can be participating in these and grow. Number one, ask for wisdom. Being mature takes a good deal of godly wisdom. So what should we do as we mature? How about seek wisdom? And the first step in seeking wisdom, if we look at God's word from Solomon all the way to James, is that we ask the one who is wisdom for wisdom. And he will. Some great promises here. Ask that he would run the truths we've talked about tonight, about his authority, his work, our identity, to run these into our hearts and minds, and that would come out of our fingertips and our mouths. If you would turn to James 1, 5 through 6. It's a familiar passage. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. God gives generously to all without reproach. What a statement. What a thought. But what a God we have as Father, that He would treat us like this. He wants His children to be wise. Lean into this promise. Make a habit of asking for and seeking wisdom. You cannot go wrong. Do it all in faith. When you ask for wisdom from God, you are asking a real being. It's not some concept out here. He really hears you. He really loves you. And he really has promised 
to give his children wisdom when they ask in faith. And the cool thing about wisdom is that it's not just knowing what's right. So when we're asking this, it's not just, Lord, give me knowledge. It's part of it. But wisdom is not just knowing what's right. If we read Proverbs, if we read Psalms, if you read James and a host of other passages in God's Word, wisdom is knowledge that leads to godly living. The two go hand in hand, and you can't separate them. Godly wisdom always leads to godly maturity. Number two, be patient in Christ. Be patient in maturing. Maturity takes time. It does not happen overnight. It doesn't happen without trial. It doesn't happen without repenting of sin. Being in God's word. Being with his people. But it all takes time. There's an element where we know this to be true. If we look around the physical world that God has made... It takes decades for an acorn to grow into a huge, strong, mature white oak. Our little ones take months of growing inside their mother's wombs before they're born. And then even then, you know, the work has really just begun. It takes years of training and feeding and growing and some heartache before we release them as productive, kingdom-building young adults. We see this element of time clearly in the case of, of a tree or of children, but we oftentimes act like our spiritual hearts ought to mature overnight. Turn to Philippians 2, 12 through 13. This is really important. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listen to this. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Be encouraged in your fight against sin. Do you have any hatred of it? It is from God. Ask and work for more. Do you have any discipline over your mind and body? It is from God. Pray and work for more will to pursue him. Do you have any affection for the one who came to die in your place? It is from him. Pray and work for more. A mature person remembers that God works in God's time and in God's economy. And sometimes that does not make sense to us. But the mature person does not point a finger at the Lord 
accusing him of taking too long. The mature and the maturing learn to rest in God's plan while they work out their own salvation. Now, one one last thing on patience. If you just look at this room, everyone is maturing at different rates and in different areas to some degree. So that means that you aren't the only one that you need to be patient with, so to speak. That person sitting next to you needs it as well. That person needs your prayer, your patience, and a lot of sin-covering love as they mature. Very much like our Father has for us. He is patient with us. He's patient with me. And I do want us to remember this is not a passive patience. This is an active patience. It's an active working This patience involves exhortation and rebuke and discipline, faith, and a lot of love. This this maturity and patience is kind, it's full of good works itself, and it remembers that God is the one changing their heart, just like he's changing yours. There is one person at least in your life who greatly requires your active patience. It might be your spouse. It could be a child. It could be a church member. It could be a friend. It could be anybody. And the reality is maybe they aren't maturing at the moment. Okay, there's work to do. But come alongside them. Remind them that the foundation is God and what he's done, which changes everything. Remind them that they are Christ's, that they are not their own, which changes everything. Remind them that truth is found in God and his word only, and that our eyes are opened, which changes everything. He is patient with you. Let's be this kind of patient with each other. And when we are, The greatness and the glory of God is displayed beautifully. So in closing, how do we mature? It's the gospel. How do we help each other mature? It's the gospel. What do we need when we forget the truth? The gospel. The gospel is a short word for the greatest story, the greatest reality, the greatest gift, and the best news that we could ever know. Think about, live it out. Maturity is founded and built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So may we strive to never forget this. So as we go into this next week, would we desire 
to be mature. And to do so by knowing and resting in who God is, what he's done, that we are his, and would we cling to the truth in his word no matter what comes. Let's turn over to Jude. Verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.